Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Um, those of you who join us online, we're glad that you're able to do this. Just want to re- keep reminding ourselves that um, if you know anybody who's viewing online, is at, at home, like, um, so just to encourage you to reach out to them uh, throughout the week uh, to make human contact. Uh, we know this isn't enough. We're glad we can transmit it this way, but, but we also know that we are created to connect, as we're going to be talking about that today, like in, in a real way, like person to person, life on life, eye contact, uh, tone of voice, all those things are part of like being made known and being, being, being known by others. And so if you're viewing from home, just know we, we care about you and want to connect with you. And again, if you're here today and you know somebody who's at home, would you reach out to them this week? Just see if you could stop by and say hello and shake a hand, hug a neck, bring a gift, bring a, bring a meal, something like that. I think that would be a blessing. Um, well, we are going to uh, be in Genesis 2 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there in, in your Bible, you can do that. Just a couple things, uh, just get started. You know, um, if you've been coming here for a while, when we talk about giving here at the church, we talk about giving as part of our worship. Like, it's an expression of, of our trust in who God is, of our gratitude for what God has done. And, uh, and ever so often, I think it's important just to remind ourselves of the good work God is doing through, through your generosity, through your worship in that way. And so just recently, we've had a lot of things happening both globally and locally um, in the way of like disasters and things happening, fires, tornadoes. Um, we know about the war in Eastern Europe. And so um, just so you're aware, um, just this past week, we were able to send a financial gift, uh, I think $2,000 to um, churches in Eastern Europe who are right now taking in refugees just to pay for like basic things like food and diapers and things that are needed for those families so we're supporting those christ followers and those churches who are on the front line right now um loving those people well and being the hands and feet of christ um yeah so just want you to know that um yeah so that's uh yesterday um our worship our sorry our mission pastor jeff actually drove out to eastland texas and took like 1200 dollars worth of just supplies and goods out there to supply to uh, to firefighters, first responders, people out there who are fighting fires. So you may have been paying attention to that recently. And so there's some things that we're doing just on the ground out of your worship, out of God's generosity to you and then your generosity to the church. There's just a few examples of things that are, that are happening. Um, also want to bring to your attention um, that there is a, there is a need um, currently right now. We've got a women's retreat coming up this uh, coming weekend. And um, we've, we've been in need. There are six different ladies who for whatever the reasons are, needed scholarships, and we've already been able to provide four of those, and so two more are needed. Um, it's $105 to send a lady to the retreat, and so I just want to mention that to you this morning. Um, so $210 fills that need, um, and so if God's like putting that on your heart as I'm saying this, or you just kind of came in today like, I just, I feel like God is asking me to be generous in, in a specific way, I want you to know about that. Um, historically, when that happens here, we bring it before you, you, you give more than what's needed, uh, and so if that happens, uh, our goal, we'll just throw the rest of the remainder in with um, the rest of our giving and worship, and we'll continue funding what God is doing around the world in our community. But um, we do have a need for two more scholarships for this coming women's retreat. I want you to be aware of that. If God puts that on your heart, um, certainly don't want anybody to feel like guilted or shamed or manipulated into that. just want you to know the need and let God do the rest. So um, well, we're going to be in uh, Genesis 2, uh, talking through... Um, really the specifics of God creating man and woman. Um, we're not going to have time to unpack a lot of topics that we're going to hit today. Okay, there'll be a several times where I'm like, we don't have time to unpack that. Um, that's not our goal today. Our, really, our goal is to get to the center of what it means to be a human being, created in the image of God, both male and female. And that's where we're, that's where we're headed today. 
Um, what I want to do is just take a moment to like give you some explanation over the book of Genesis, like kind of what you're reading here. So when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you're reading about God's good creation before sin and death enter into the world. Once we get to Genesis 3, everything becomes broken, distorted, marred, darkened. Sin and death enter the story in Genesis 3. As long as we're in Genesis 1 and 2, we're experiencing, we're seeing, we're reading about God's good creation, not tainted with sin and death, okay? The other thing that's important to know is Genesis 1, as Moses writes it, is in many ways just a kind of a flyover, an overview of the days of creation. Then what happens in Genesis 2 is it's like he takes a microscope and really zooms in on the second half of day 6 and walks us through the account of the creation of Adam and Eve. And so that's really what we're going to look at today as we ask this question, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a being created in the image of God? And so we'll pick this up in uh, verse 8. We read these words. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that tree that um, is going to be a part of the narrative of what happens in Genesis 3, it's present in the garden. But what's important to understand is at this point, Adam only has the knowledge of that which is good. Even though this tree is there, he does not know not good. Like that's not a a thought, it's not an idea. Um, He doesn't have any inkling of what it means to encounter or to experience or to participate in something that is not good. The tree is present, but Adam only knows what is good. The world that we're looking at in Genesis 2 is saturated with goodness. So anything we read here, we can, we can understand it as a good thing. Now, the world we live in today that you and I live in is saturated in not good, which is part of the reason why we're doing this series, that you and I might have a clearer view of how things were in the beginning, that we might also understand ourselves better today and what is to come. That what we get in the end is a restored, renewed version of what we're reading here. What we see Adam doing here in the garden gives us some indication of what you and I will be doing for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we read that even though Adam is here and he only knows what is good and everything he sees is saturated in what is good, there is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in verse 18, this is where we're going to read God declaring something about Adam's situation. In verse 18, God says this. He says, it is, listen to this, not good. That should catch our attention. Like, every day of creation is stamped with good, good, good. When he's done, very good. But now God is, and I think this is the voice of God declaring Right? I don't, think that this, I don't think Adam has the capacity to call something not good because he doesn't know what not good is. So here God is looking at Adam, and he says about Adam's situation, it is not good that what? That man should be alone. 
Therefore, or my remedy for that is what? I will make a helper fit for him. So it's so important to understand that whatever God does by creating Eve, it is in, it is in a sense a remedy for Adam's aloneness. It is not good for Adam to be alone, so I will. So therefore, right, I will complete this creation by creating a helper fit for him. Now let's unpack a few of these words. So let's talk about this idea of helper, um, because I think in our common vernacular, um, if we just hear that word helper, we're going to tend to do this, right, because that's how we understand helpers, right? So you have like master electricians, and the, and the person who follows them around carrying tools is what? Their helper, their assistant, their apprentice, their mentee. And so when we hear helper in our common context, we tend to do this. Now, here's, here's the problem with doing that here. The Hebrew word, azar, is most frequently used in the Old Testament to describe God as our helper. So we can't do this right because we can't we can't put God below us and oh he, he follows us around I know we treat him like that sometimes but he doesn't follow us around you know with our tools assisting us in life serving us yet the old testament most frequently uses this hebrew word azar to describe God as our helper so whatever God means by calling Eve a helper we're here we're here we're not here now this word alone doesn't inform us enough to unpack the topic of like gender roles how God created Eve different from Adam and how God created Adam different from Eve the 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 rest of the Bible is full of descriptions and counsel on understanding that how in, in God's eyes from a perspective of worth and value Adam and Eve are created here even though functionally their roles will be different, just like your role and my role are different in so many other ways. But value doesn't do this. Worth doesn't do this. Adam needed a helper to help him with what? To till the garden? To pluck fruit from trees? He needed help with his aloneness. That's what he needed help with. And, and here's the thing. God could have said a lot of things that wouldn't be good. He could have said, hey, it's not good for Adam to get hungry. It's not good in my house. It's not good for Adam to get thirsty. It's not good for Adam to, to, to cut his foot. It's not good for Adam to, to have no shelter or to get cold or to get too hot. I mean, all those things are not good. But at the essence of what it means to be human being, God speaks and says, here's the ultimate not good. The ultimate not good for Adam is for him to be alone. Now, let's talk about this word alone. I don't think at this point it's, it's fully the idea of loneliness, but I think what God is talking about, and we'll see this in this word, is that if this is not dealt with, it's going to lead to loneliness. So the word here in the Hebrew language, um, this is the way I pronounce it. I don't know how close it is, so if we have any Hebrew scholars, you come up afterwards and correct me. Um, but it's the word hayah. So like, hiya! That's how I remember it. But here's more importantly what we need to understand grammatically. It's the be verb. To be. And so what God is saying is not necessarily that Adam is drowning in his loneliness and he's throwing this pity party and God, God. But it's the idea that God is looking at Adam as a being and saying, that's not good for him to just be by himself alone. 
And if I leave him in that aloneness, it will lead to loneliness, despair, isolation. It is not good for Adam to be alone. Now, this is really important. If you track the use of that word in the Old Testament, um, it's going to take you to the next book in your Bible, the book of Exodus. And in Exodus um, 3, God comes to Moses through the burning bush and tells Moses, hey, I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh and to set my people free. And of course, Moses is reluctant. He's like, are you sure you picked the right guy? Like, did you check the address on the bush? Are you sure you got the right bush? Because like, I'm not good at all this kind of stuff. And in that conversation, Moses is like, okay, so suppose I go, who, who am I going to tell them sent me? Do you remember God's response to that? Tell them that I am sent you. It's the same word, hayah. So think about that. It's not good for Adam to be hayah, but God himself says, I want you to identify me as I be hayah. So we take a step back and go, well, wait a second, what's the difference here? Here's what you have to understand about God. God has always been and is and will always be relational. He didn't become relational after he created you and me. And God is and has always been and will always be completely satisfied relationally within himself god the father god the son god the spirit so god doesn't get lonely now think about it the gospels are so beautiful in the way especially the gospel of john the way that that john describes the relationship between jesus the son and god the father isn't it so precious to see jesus when things get stressful or things start ramping up he's like hey guys i need a break and what does he do he checks out to go be where? Alone? No, with his father. He's not isolating himself. He's not throwing a pity party for himself. He's not saying, I just need to go meditate for a while. He's like, no, I need to go draw near to my father. That relationship has existed for all eternity. Think about that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So when God says, I be, he's enough for himself. You are not enough for yourself. And that's what God is saying about Adam. You can't do what I can do. You can't satisfy your own aloneness. It is not good for you to be alone. Therefore, I will create a helper fit for you. If you're struggling to kind of understand like God's perspective on this idea of, 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 of a helper who's fitting, I think the best illustrations I can think of here is, is, is Adam is, I, I like to use the furniture illustration just because like, it's not good for me to lift heavy furniture alone. And so, so God has created a helper for me, um, not, sub, you know, not subordinate, um, not, not in any way lower than, but to carry something with me, to get on the other side and we lift it together. And ultimately, what is Adam lifting here? His aloneness. They're lifting that together. Um, but another way to think about it is, do you guys remember uh, manual transmissions? Yeah, I have a lot of sadness over over the manual transmissions going away. It's what I learned to drive first. It's what I wish my kids would learn to drive first. Uh, I get it. We needed, we needed, some, we needed some, some brain space to focus on our, our smartphones. So we can't, like, it was just too many things at the same time. So I get why we've done away with it. But if you know the manual transmission, you know what it sounds like and what it feels like when the gears miss each other. 
right? You grind the gears, this horrific sound. But you also know then the sweetness of when things just come together. Like when you let off the clutch at just the right amount of pressure and the gas and the engine, the transmission just come together like this. It's like, oh, that felt good, right? That's the idea. Thinking of two gears, Adam and Eve working through life, like two gears just coming together, right? And so in marriage, when we hear the gears grinding, something's not, something's not coming together the way it was created to. And so as God creates Eve, he's creating a helper fit for him. Not below him, not, not even above him, though the argument could be made. Since she's the last of creation, right? Everything's climaxing to what's most important. So if anything, it's like this. We'll stay here. But that's the idea. It is not good for man to be by himself. He can't satisfy that longing and that need in and of himself. He needs another being to be with him. And one of the, the great lies that we, we buy into, and I'll, I'll unpack why I think this happens, though, is that we can be sufficient in and of ourselves. We can be our own wisdom, our own source of comfort, our own best friend. And you don't ever hear people talking that way, yet we functionally operate that way. Anytime we're operating in isolation, what we're saying is, I'm enough for me. One of the reasons, and maybe the primary reason that that happens, we're about to see, is this. Once sin and death enter into the world, so does shame. And evidently, the shame of disobeying God is more powerful than the longing of loneliness. Because what happens? Immediately, Adam isolates himself from Eve and Eve from Adam, and they isolate themselves from God. So even though there was this loneliness that began to well up, that was, that was drawing them back into intimacy with each other and with God, something seemingly stronger than that kept them in isolation. It was the shame. I don't know fully you know, how known you are in your life right now, but if you're walking in isolation and loneliness, first of all, you're not enough for yourself. But it would be really helpful for you to evaluate what is it? What is it that's keeping me here? in this loneliness, in this isolation. And maybe there's some shame that needs to be dealt with, some, some guilt that needs to be dealt with, something else, right, that's convincing you that it's better <laughs> to be lonely than to face whatever that thing is. Fear, shame, all those sorts of things. So as the story continues in verse 19, Here's what God's going to do. And this is an important part of the story, okay? Um, I've got no issues with animals. I love them. I love eating them. Um, I love, gosh, I know. I have this horrible reputation here, and I just make comments like that just to feed into that. I actually, I'm a, I'm a pretty big softy. We have a cat. You ask my cat where his, her favorite place to sleep is, it's on my legs. I'm a big softy. But here's the point. Here's the point. You're going to see clearly that nothing else in all of creation, nothing within Adam is sufficient to fill this need, and nothing else in creation can fill this need. Here's what happens. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Do you remember from Genesis 1 what God did in each day of creation? He called it. He called it morning. He called it. He named the things. Now Adam, as an image bearer, is doing that. Nothing else in creation gets to name. 
Flowers don't name themselves. Dogs don't name themselves. Eagles don't name themselves. So Adam is an image bearer already here in the garden. He's giving things names. The man gave all names to all the livestock, all the stock, all the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But this is important for Adam. There was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, this is really important. Adam didn't need something that could mimic him. He didn't need something that liked him or was attracted to him. If that had been the case, he could have settled for man's best friend. Right? You, you, have you had one of those kind of dogs that you just can't do anything to break that, that animal's loyalty to you? It likes you even when you're a jerk? He needed more than something to just like him. Right? He needed something more than something to just mimic him. Like, if that was enough, then chimpanzees and parrots would have been enough. Right? What did he actually need then? He needed something to know him. Your dog can't know you. Parrots, chimpanzees, nothing in creation can know you. The principle of it takes one to know one applies here. You have to be a being to know a being. And Adam surveyed all of creation and gave it all names. Just super cool. But nothing was found that was fit to be a helper to him. To help him with what? His aloneness. So here's what God does. Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It's interesting. God's not speaking necessarily woman into existence. He's choosing to pull woman out of man. And then when, listen to this, verse 23, then the man said, this is Adam, this at last. That's important. Because even though God was the one who declared, it's not good that man should be alone, Adam had this longing inside of him that he probably didn't even have a description for. Because, how do we know that? Because once he sees the woman, he's like, at last. Like, I'm, I feel a satisfaction for something I've been longing for in this being. We make jokes about, well, it's because she was so pretty or whatever. And yes, I'm sure he was physically attracted to Eve, but I don't think that's what he's getting at when he says at last. Because look at what he says, at last what? At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Like there's some pretty cool things in creation, but none of them are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. None will remedy my aloneness. She shall be called woman because why? She was taken out of man. She was like him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, here's what I want to do. And this is a special Sunday, and this is a family worship Sunday, which we do this four times a year. Um, the idea behind that is that um, there is, as a family, um, we'll see this in just a minute though, as a family, there's something sacred about a family. Something like 
set apart about husband and wife, that relationship, and being a parent to children. And, 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 the, and we read through the Bible, and we're like, hey, this matters to God. Like, he calls us, he calls himself our father, and he calls us his sons and daughters. He calls us brothers and sisters. So this whole family thing, it must mean something. And so what we're going to do now is just look at a couple places in the New Testament to get some kind of indication of, of how all that fits together, family and church. But one of the things that, that I would say on the front end is this, that what you see in God's creation for the family really is a reflection of what you're going to see in the church. So like dads and husbands, they, they step into this role of like pastor and shepherd for the family. Like when you do that, you're reflecting what happens in the church. You're doing that, you're reflecting a greater reality than just your little family unit. When we go to Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's writing, and he's reflecting on God's calling in his life, okay? So that's where his mind is, but I want you to listen to some of the things he says as he's reflecting on being called um, to be a minister, to be being called um, to be a representative of Christ. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. To do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So far, so good. He's just contemplating this calling on his life. But look at what he says next. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God. So as he's contemplating his role in the universe, why, why he even exists, he's beginning to think about this mysterious plan of God that has been hidden for how long? The ages. Something that's been on God's mind and heart for a long time. And look at what he says next. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So what is he thinking about when he's thinking about God's eternal purpose? What is he thinking about when he's thinking about the plan of God that has been hidden for the ages? He's talking about the church. The church was on God's mind at creation. It was not a reaction to man's brokenness. It wasn't something God thought about um, after the Old Testament was done being written, and God's like, what can I do next? Oh, I got this cool idea. I'll form this thing called the church. No, the church was on God's mind as he's creating Adam and Eve. Think about that. Like what we see in Adam and Eve, like quickly he's going to say to them, like, be fruitful and multiply. A man will leave his father uh, to be united to his wife. He's beginning to think about, like, parents getting together and having children, and those children going off and getting married and having children. And as he's thinking about these things, he's also thinking about the church. So your family unit, right, is meant to be a reflection of the greater reality of what is to come. It's almost like as God is creating Adam and Eve, it's like God is just whispering to creation. The church is coming. A place where you'll gather together with more than just your family unit, but you'll gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll call each other's brothers. You'll call each other's sisters. It'll be like your small family is part of something bigger, a larger family. 
So when it comes to raising children to know and love Jesus, we see the parents as the first ones in. You're the pastor, you're the shepherd, you're the, the, the spiritual caregivers of your children. And it's not our job as a church to step in between you and your children or between you and your spouse, but to come alongside you, to fit with you, to help you, to resource you, to encourage you as you lead your children to know and love Jesus. That's why it's important for us to invite our kids in a few times a year. Let them see how you worship. Let them see how you respond to God's word. Let them see what you do when somebody stands up in front and says, hey, let's pray together. They're like watching you. Man, you're the first disciple makers in your own home. And as a church, our job is to come alongside you and to fit with you, not to take your place. And that's the heart behind family worship weekends and family worship Sundays. So here's where we're going to end, though. A few chapters later in Ephesians, Paul gets really specific talking about the roles of husband and wife and there's something really important embedded in what he's saying okay so here here are these words this is ephesians 5 22 wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and himself its savior so again we're not going to unpack like gender roles that's not what today is for it's just to understand better what it means that it's not good for man to be alone and what is God saying about us and so already as as Paul is talking about the different roles of husband and wife he's beginning to talk a lot about church and Christ isn't he I just listen to that now as we go forward listen for those words Christ in the church now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Listen to verse 27. It'll remind you of Genesis 2, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she may be holy and without blemish. That's, for me, describing what happens in Genesis 2 when God brings Eve to Adam. He sees her in her splendor without spot or, or blemish. But, but our temptation with this passage and the way that we misapply it is to say, okay, here's what Paul's doing. He's trying to help you in your marriage. And so he's thinking, what, what illustration could I come up with? What living metaphor could I point to that would help you be a better wife or help you be a better husband? Oh, I know. I'll talk about the relationship between Jesus and the church. That'll work as kind of like an illustration here for marriage. And what we're gonna see though is that's actually not what he's doing. If you skip down with me, Verse 29, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Any doubt what Paul's thinking about here? We just read it in Genesis 2. He's thinking about that moment in the garden when God creates the woman and brings her to Adam. That's what he's thinking about. He just quoted it. And then look at what he says. The mystery is profound. If that was where the sentence ended, we would go, you're right, it is. Marriage is profound. Women are profound. That's a polite way to put it. But that's not where the sentence ends. And he goes on to say, listen, I'm actually not talking about your marriage. Look at what he says. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church and Jesus don't exist as a reflection to help you be a better spouse. Your marriage exists to be a reflection of the greater reality of the church. Like, think about that. 
Paul's describing, what's on his heart is describing this relationship within the church and from the church to Christ. And he's like, I know, I'll call on husbands and wives as an illustration of that. That's the profound mystery. So think about that. Here in Genesis 2, God creating Adam and Eve, he's got the church on his mind. And listen, church, we exist today as a reflection of the greater reality of the kingdom that is to come. I don't expect to see you sitting like this in eternity. I don't. If so, we'll be sitting together at the feet of Jesus. God calls you his sons and daughters. Okay, here's what that means. God is gonna, your dad is gonna set a table for you. Like that's, that's special. Have you ever had a chance to sit down and eat with somebody who is special to you? Like, your family, good. I'm glad they're special to you. That's a sweet thing. Um, like, somebody like a mentor or a faint, like, like somebody that really meant something to you. I, I, like, I got to sit and eat dinner one time with one of my favorite singer-songwriters at this retreat I was at. He's one of those kind of, like, deals where I just kind of geek out when I'm around this person. I feel all weird, and like, you know. So I'm sitting there, and he grabs his food and then comes and sits down right across from me. And I'm like, oh, that's Andrew Peterson. And I was so nervous, and then start eating, we start talking, but at the end of that meal, he's just another human being, and it was just good that I wasn't alone with him. It was so sweet. Listen, God the Father is setting a table for you, and you get, you have a seat, because you're, because you're one of his children. You see how that works? Your small family unit, as dysfunctional as family units can be, is a reflection of the greater reality that is to come. That's what we're longing for. Go read the end of the book, Revelation 21 and 22, and you're going to go, that sounds like, like Genesis 2. Yes, why? God is restoring and renewing all things. You and I will walk in fellowship with one another like, like Adam and Eve, no shame. No reason to hide from you, no reason to isolate from you, and no reason to hide from God. And he will come and walk with us in the cool of the evening. Isn't that sweet? So I want to end here. Um, we're going to do something special now. Um, we've got um, a group of parents in our church who've, who've said, you know what, like I want to be committed to this raising my children thing. Um, you know, some churches might do like a baby dedication, and the idea is like to say like I'm, we're committing this child to the Lord, and there's something valuable about that. For us, we want to come alongside parents and make the commitment with you. Um, we don't just want to have a dedication ceremony, but we want to have a commitment that we share with one another um, to raise your children to know and love Jesus. So anytime you place them in our care, we're aiming at the same thing that you're aiming at, right? And so what I want to do now is we, last Sunday, we had a parent commitment class where um, our next-gen pastors, Jeremy and Blake, I don't know who taught it, but took these parents through um, just a biblical perspective of raising children to know and love Jesus and out of that, then, those who wanted to um, are going to make a public commitment today in front of you. But here's what I need you to understand. This isn't a one-way commitment. This is a two-way commitment. So you're, you actually have a part in what we're about to do. If you're a part of this church, now if you're visiting to here today, or you're not a Christian, hey, don't walk away going, now what are they expecting out of me? Nothing. We just want you to come back. But for those of you who are part of this family, we're about to make a commitment together. Okay, you good with that? Okay. So here's what we want to do. Um, I want to invite um, these families, you know who you are, just to come down 
and stand here at the front. And yes, this is super intimidating, so pray for them as they come down here. They don't want to be down here in front. Um, but they're going to line up down here across the front. Um, I'm going to introduce them to you um, and their kiddos, if their kiddos are with them. And uh, we're going to talk about what it means to make this commitment. Um, and then we're going to pray. Um, if there are any elders in the room, you don't have to come down right now. Just a heads up. I'm going to invite you down when we pray in a minute. Um, if there's elders out in the commons that are, don't know that, if you want to grab them, that would be awesome. Um, so y'all go ahead and y'all slide down here towards Jeremy. I, I smelt him earlier today. He smells good. Slide on down here by him. You do smell good. I know that because you hug me. All right, so here we go. Um, just real quick, I'm going to let you know who we've got here. Um, I think so, so right here, uh, Jason and Ashley Bruner, and uh, they've got Precious Peyton here. Um, where are the Eldridges at? Oh, down here. So uh, John and Sarah Eldridge have Samantha and Dale right here. Um, Blake and Caitlin, far in. Blake is our kid's pastor, but he's also a dad. He's also a shepherd in his home and, uh, and has, has the beautiful partnership with um, Caitlin, and this is Blakely. Um, and then they, they aren't in order that I have them here. Jason and Katie right here, uh, Minrich. And this is Kyler and Cade with them. And then we have Josh and Amanda Samoski right here. Uh, and they've got their older kids as well. So Jude and Anna, can we see them? Hey, Jude and Anna. Uh, and then Jensen is the one who is speaking in tongues right now. <laughs> mm. Spiritual moment. Awesome. And then I think, is that, is that everybody who's here for today? Okay. Um, so what's going to happen just in a second is, um, it's actually really sweet. Jeremy's got um, in this envelope, you just want to hand those out. Um, these are letters um, that are written from our elders, um, and they express our commitment to pray and walk with these families. Um, the idea behind this, and we did this when our kids were little, is that our prayer for all these young ones is that they will grow up to know and love Jesus. And on that day when that decision is made public, um, or when that decision is made in the home, that the parents will have these envelopes with with the memory of our commitment together and I, I can remember with my two boys like letting them open the envelope and just read how long um, that, that the elders of this church have been praying for them and it may be a year from now it may be six years from now maybe 60 years from now um, but just this that's what's in the envelopes is just an expression of the elders commitment to pray for these families and to shepherd them so um, here's what I'm going to do I just want to read a couple of verses out of Deuteronomy 6 um, that describe God's desire for the home. And then Jensen's going to sing a solo. We've got to wait for the music. Aww, that's so precious. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, this is what God says in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And to parents, we read these words, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates what a beautiful image of what it means to disciple our children to know and love Jesus like that's not just a Sunday thing that's everyday thing when you sit when you rise when you eat when you lay down when you're sitting there uh, on the front porch 
You're looking for those moments to teach these little ones about just how precious Jesus is. And so what we're going to do now is um, I'm going to uh, read um, just a statement uh, first for the parents. And if you agree to this statement, um, you're going to respond with we will or I will or yes. And then I've got a statement for you as the church. So let me start with the parents. Here's our commission for you. By God's grace, will you as parents agree to commit your own lives to Jesus Christ and commit to lead and spiritually nurture your children in the gospel? Okay. Congregation, church, if you likewise will commit to, to pray for these families, to support these families, and who knows, when, when opportunity arises, step in and be a disciple maker for these children Here's your commission. By God's grace, will you as the body of Christ here at Solid Rock commit to support and encourage these families and partner with them in the discipleship of their children? All right, amen to that. So any elders in the room want to come down, I'm going to pray over these families and then we're going to respond as we normally do. We'll sing together, we'll pray together as we get ready to go. So got some elders in the room. These aren't all our elders, but we got five out of eight. All right. Let's pray together. Church, we just join me right now. Um, Father God, we thank you that we know what a family is supposed to look like because we know you. <laughs> we know what love for children looks like because we know you. Like you are the ultimate father. You're the ultimate parent. Um, and you desire more than these earthly parents um, for these children to grow up to know you and to love you and to be part of your greater family and so that's our prayer today that God you would draw these children to yourself that you would use these parents and their commitment you would use other family members and friends you would use this church um, to just draw back the curtains on your goodness for these children that they would see how good you are that they would run after you they would chase after you they would give their lives to you God at whatever appointed time you have God, I pray that you would help us as their church family to come around them and to support them in this journey. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we would see this as, as a family journey. So Lord Jesus, we pray. Anybody here today, God, that you're dealing with, you're working in, who maybe is thinking about something completely different now, would you take the rest of this service, Father, and use it for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.